Transforming sounds, altered selves, how music changes in time, changes us, and changes our worlds. Hello, and welcome to Transforming Sounds, Altered Selves, a Green College podcast. I'm Mark Vesey, Principal and Program Director of Green College, a community of scholars and artists, mainly graduate students, at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. During the past year, as part of its public programming, the college hosted a series of performances and lectures to explore the transformative effects of music in different times and settings. All cultures have stories about these things. In the ancient Greek mythology known to composers in the Western classical tradition, the songs of Orpheus made beasts tame and trees dance. And when the singer Amphion touched the strings of his lyre, the stones of a tumble-down city wall leapt spontaneously back into place. What might those old tales be trying to tell us? Can modern research in cognitive psychology, anthropology, and musicology help make sense of them? Could there be a scientific basis for our belief in the power of sounds arranged in certain ways to enable, unify, restore, even transform human consciousness and human worlds of experience? Each of the four episodes of this podcast focuses on a particular theme or set of linked ideas arising from discussion with scholars, performers, and composers who shared their research and thoughts with us at the college. In this introductory episode, entitled The Mystery of Musical Being, Emily Logan asks what kind of creatures we humans must be to be played upon as we are. You are listening to Ordinary Beauty by Eileen Paget, performed by the UBC Chamber Strings, along with myself, Emily Logan, as pianist. Ever hear a funky rhythm and feel the urge to groove or dance along? Or have frustration or sadness transformed into joy after hearing music? What if music could treat neurological conditions? 
Well, in fact, it can do all of these. Music's transformative power has long been a mystery to neuroscientists and psychologists. Some of its transformative powers just cannot be explained. I'm Emily Logan, resident member at Green College, and today I will be your host as we explore the mysterious and transformative power of music. We will look at music's transformative power from the psychological realm, from the field of neuroscience, and from the perspective of a composer and performer. I think that that music um, it it's somewhat mysterious as to what it is. So I think that the mystery of music is kind of important. Bill Thompson is a distinguished professor of psychology at Macquarie University, where he runs the Music, Sound, and Performance Lab. He is chief investigator of the Center of Excellence in Cognition and its Disorders and founding director of the Center for Elite Performance, Expertise and Training. He spoke about why music poses many mysteries. And uh, I think we can all relate to the fact that we listen to music an awful lot when we're forming our identities as teenagers, um, Sort of children, uh, young adults, uh, there's sort of a period in which we're really focusing on both identity and we're listening to a lot of music. And that music comes to stand for our identity. So people who are fans of a particular uh, genre of music or even a particular band can really see that music as a, a representation of who they are their uh, values um, and their ambitions. I, I think that this is uh, something that, that ends up being sustained throughout our lives. And when we listen to music from our adolescence, our early adulthood, later in life, it brings to mind uh, this sense of our self. And we call this our extended self, that self that, that, that is a kind of source of continuity uh, throughout our lives. Bill shared with us how music became part of his personal identity. He pointed out the role that music plays in inducing and helping us express emotion. So if I look at my own experience with music uh, growing up, I quite enjoyed um, both listening to music on my own and also just sort of playing around on the piano on my own. And it became a kind of very personal um, journey for me to be just to interact with music. It can just be something about working through your feelings, not necessarily difficult feelings, but just trying to understand yourself more, um, uh, to generate some powerful uh, emotional states, because occasionally you would kind of be involved, particularly playing, I found, that would generate a really quite a powerful state, a little bit maybe like a meditative state. 
um, that was uh, quite pleasant and uh, and kind of inspiring. So I think that that's that that's something that people do a lot, and they and they explicitly acknowledge that 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 they often listen to music to process their own emotions, to understand themselves. Our identity is also very much related to the social aspect of our lives. It influences the type of social interactions we engage in, the people that we surround ourselves with, and how we perceive these. Music not only has a strong link to our identity, but it also plays an important role in the development of social bonds. So if we are listening to music with other people, we feel an affiliation with those other people. And that affiliation strengthens kind of incrementally with every listening. And it's a little bit mysterious how this happens because they know that there are actually kind of the release of certain hormones and, and neurochemicals associated with music that are also associated with social bonds. And uh, this is interesting. So it's as if the music um, somehow finds a way of uh, simulating the processes involved in bonding with other people. And that means that, that when you like music, and other people share in, in your music preferences, you feel an affiliation with them. In light of the fact that music is so tightly woven into our sense of self, researchers have begun studying the potential rehabilitative power of music. The effects have been surprising. They include helping people overcome speech difficulties, improving walking in people with Parkinson's disease, and aiding in memory retrieval in dementia patients. Although music cannot cure neurological impairments, it has proven to be a form of treatment. It can provide temporary relief from symptoms. Why this is, is still a mystery. We have been using, and many people have been using music um, as a kind of uh, treatment um, or therapy for people with cognitive decline, um, other problems, neurological impairment. And, and I think all of the reasons that music is so powerful for all of us are the same reasons why music is also powerful when used as treatment. Because when you have neurological impairment, a lot of those aspects of that, that make us who we are, such as our emotional lives, our sense of identity, our social connections, those are the very um, aspects of our uh, experience that seem to also be disrupted by neurological impairment. And uh, for people with dementia, for example, playing music that they... Um, that was important to them earlier in their lives can bring back powerful autobiographical memories, partly because music, uh, we experience it so much earlier in our lives that it, it is kind of 
all around our brain. It's 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 represented in multiple areas. It has a a movement component. It has a kind of aesthetic, emotional component. Um, it has more concrete um, representations associated with words. Um, it's got associations with a time and place and and a feeling. Um, and uh, and and I think that that's that's one reason that if you have damage to the brain, it's more likely to survive um, that damage for longer periods of time. And also specific aspects like autobiographical memories that are associated with music seem to be represented in parts of the brain that are preserved so that music really is a kind of island of preservation um, that, that allows us to recapture a sense of identity in the face of, of, of sort of declining uh, cognitive function. looked at the mysterious power of music from the perspective of psychology. Now, let's take a glimpse into the field of neuroscience and their view on music's transformative power. Peter Wust and Nori Jacobi are both specialists in neuroscience, music, and rhythm. Peter is a neuroscientist at Aarhus University in Denmark and the director of the Center for Music in the Brain. Nori is a presidential scholar in society and neuroscientist at Columbia University. Peter spoke about the particular role that rhythm plays in inducing emotion. Emotions that rhythm induce are quite different from the emotions that more harmonic texture or melodies will, and even melodies in connection to the lyrics, for instance. So, so in that sense, I, I, I always found music very fascinating because just this sensation of groove that we want to move to a rhythm, that's actually a sensation that you can't get from, from anywhere else in a way. Especially this is extremely particular for, for music. Fast tempos will tend to get you up, get your adrenaline up and uh, make you more ready to, to do stuff. Peter went on to speak about how the precision, or even the lack of precision, in live music performance can affect the listener in quite a visceral way. Simple and... Uh, Ting ting ling and uh, walking bass ding 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 and so forth and uh, a piano player for instance and you can see how different bands will have different uh, they they'll try to span the timing out it's not nice if everybody's together you'll have to have sort of a a variance between the members so 
If you think about my favorite uh, rhythm section, to, uh, the Miles Davis rhythm section from the 60s, you see, you see that Tony Williams, who's a drummer, he's always ahead of the others, right? He's up on the beat, right? And, and the bassist, uh, Ron Carter, is sort of in the middle, and Herbie is hanging so far be behind the beat, right? But it creates exactly what you want, the tension, the, the feeling that, okay, this is not... Uh, stationary this is moving ahead because somebody is dragging in one direction and the others are trying to to catch up and my experience is that most people will know when when it's there when 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 you have hit the sweet spot of of this interaction everybody knows it even the bartender will will stop serving beer and uh, uh, but it's so hard to find uh, to to hit the exact spot so so this is It's hard to understand. Peter explained that studies are now being conducted to see how fetuses respond to rhythmic patterns. Using EMG technology, researchers have found that fetuses respond to the rhythm that they have been taught in the womb. They seem to notice when a rhythmic pattern is different. Nori commented on how the early acquisition of rhythm relates to musical culture. He spoke about the mystery surrounding the precision involved in producing rhythms. Infants in, in very early stage already acquire things that are very specific to their own culture. And so they are absorbing from the environment things that are characteristic of their music. So it's really hard to compare it to any other model skill The accuracy in which we can produce rhythms, uh, especially professionals, like the one that eventually get to the academy, it's a very, very accurate machine that kind of close up a very close perception action cycle in which we immediately correct things based on what we hear in our environment. We immediately contextualize when you're playing in a group, in an ensemble, you, you immediately correct and you immediately aware to a lot of things, a lot of nuanced things, and immediately translate it into action in a millisecond precision. So that is amazing. These precise adjustments that Nori spoke about are not just apparent in professional musicians. We actually make these kind of adjustments on some level in our everyday lives without even realizing it. We can even you know, walk near another person and then we know that the other person is a little bit slow so we can adapt ourselves to that. So there's a lot of things that go in cognitive into our, these motor control systems. The motor control system needs basically to coordinate multiple components of our motor system together. And, and that ability to kind of control, able to correct and grain, is something that is in the motor system. Eileen Paget is a composer and freelance musician based in Vancouver, British Columbia. 
She is also the composer of Ordinary Beauty, which you have been listening to throughout this podcast. Eileen gave us a bit of background on this piece. It's a piece I wrote from my doctoral degree at the University of British Columbia. The piece is inspired by the natural surroundings and the environment of Vancouver. The first movement is named Leaf in the Wind. The second movement is called Petals in the Rain. The third movement is called Sunlit Grove. The fourth movement is called Hawk in Flight. And the fifth movement is called Ocean Spray. I take a lot of joy from being outside in nature. For me, that's almost a spiritual experience. In Vancouver, you don't have to look very far at all for inspiration. I never get tired and I never lose a sense of awe of seeing the ocean at sunset or a sense of wonder when standing at the top of a mountain peak and seeing the horizon. And in this piece, it's very layered and complicated. There are a lot of other feelings and ideas behind each movement. to have some kind of image that the people listening to it could hold on to, as well as the people performing it, some kind of unifying idea. And so I chose these images from nature. I'm aware that people listen to music in different ways. Some people don't need an image. They're more drawn by the physical feeling of the music, by the rhythms, by the changing musical ideas, whereas other people need something to kind of stir their imagination. So whenever I write a piece, I try to make sure it's the most impactful it can be, some, the most emotionally charged, the most evocative. And so I try to make it alluring on all these different fronts. Eileen wants to transform and transport people through her music. She wants her listeners and the performer to experience the music deeply. So just how does she do that? This is a mysterious process for me. I can't just write something and not be engaged with it, not be emotionally invested in it. Because when I know whether I've written a part that I want to keep is if it makes me feel something strongly. If it's able to get an emotional reaction out of me who's already spent a lot of time with it, then I'm thinking that it's more likely to uh, be expressive to somebody listening to it for the first time. Music is a powerful tool for communication, and we don't always know why. Even as a composer, I can offer some insights to it, and I know, for example, how I can put in a certain musical surprise at one part in a piece and how people might react to this. But still, I'm riding a lot on intuition. We do know that music affects us physically, and then we also just have this mysterious part of music where we don't really know why it speaks to us. I've spoken to other composers, some who have been writing for decades, and they don't know why there. But there is a spark, there is something magical about it, and that's one of the reasons why I've been so drawn to this field, is that it's the closest I think someone can be to being a magician, because you're able to create something out of nothing, something that sparkles, something that 
can affect others around you, something that can bring people to tears or of happiness, of sadness, something that can bring people to feel beyond themselves. So there you have it. Music and rhythm are more deeply entwined in our existence than we even realize. We have seen this from the perspective of social psychology, neuroscience, and from a composer. Music is all around us, shaping who we are and continuously altering our sense of self. All we need to do is to be open to the transformative power of music. You are listening to The Mystery of Musical Being, episode one of four in the Green College podcast, Transforming Sounds, Altered Selves. The episode was presented by pianist and college member, Emily Logan. In the next episode, we travel deeper into musical space-time and explore the transformative experience of chant. Do join us again. And for links to further information and materials, you can go to greencollege.ubc.ca forward slash transforming sounds. Transforming Sounds is a podcast production of Green College UBC. The college gratefully acknowledges the generous support provided by Early Music Vancouver, the UBC School of Music, and members of its Rhythm Research Cluster, and by the Early Modern Conversions Project based at the Department of English, McGill University, and funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.